In October 2016, Christ Church embarked on a journey of courageous generosity and daring innovation, motivated by faithfulness to Christ's call. The night that we came for the big celebration, we both came with the same goal in mind. We've always consistently gave to the church, but this was, it was a leap of faith for us to really talk about how we were gonna contribute. The leadership of our church put before us a bold vision for the next season of God's grace in and through each of us. We're calling this season of ministry, Take Root. For five weeks, we met in small groups. We heard thought-provoking messages taught from the scriptures and we prayed boldly for what it would look like for each of us to root our lives more deeply in Christ for the sake of others. The decision for the two of us to go on mission trip was definitely one over an extended period of time. <laughs> I think it definitely started with Take Root. The result of this was nothing short of God glorifying. Not only do we witness thousands of people rooting their lives more deeply in Him, but we saw a stunning demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. There's an emptiness that's there if I'm not really contributing in a financial way and in other ways to a church. I definitely feel that the amount I've committed to has moved me along in my generosity journey. We became the first American church of our size to devote nearly $41 million in commitments and expected gifts over a two-year period. This remarkable outpouring of generosity will enable us to grow the capacity of our Oak Brook campus for long-term vitality and to extend flourishing to tens of thousands in our community and around the world. It was an awe-inspiring day of celebration and gratitude to God as we admired what He had done through our church family. Since that defining moment, the past year has been amazing too. We celebrated record attendance at our Christmas and Easter services. We deepened our impact in schools along the Roosevelt Road corridor, and also in two new locations in Nairobi, Kenya. Hundreds from our church family gathered at the end of April as we broke ground on our Oak Brook campus expansion. And we announced the launch of our first multi-site branch, Christ Church Esplanade. Since our founding, God has abundantly renewed our ministry across so many areas, and we're immensely grateful to Him for what He continues to do in and through each of us. We now find ourselves at the midpoint of this two-year discipleship journey, and God has only begun to show us what He has in store for us. With that, we don't want to become complacent about our progress or stop listening to Him. In fact, we've been praying boldly about what God wants for us in the coming year. He's been inspiring and encouraging and challenging us all year long. But just like with Abraham, God didn't bless us so that we could stay still. He blessed us so that we could keep extending that blessing out to others. Therefore, we won't stop asking God what He has next for us. Being a, a part of the, the family here at Christ Church has given us opportunities to become uncomfortable. I think the financial commitment that the two of us agreed to definitely was one that made us uncomfortable, <laughs> right? And I think that discomfort opened us up to be more vulnerable to other experiences. Over the next five weeks, we're going to focus on some key steps in our Take Root journey through a sermon series that we're calling Flourish. 
First, there are some of us who are new to Christ Church or Take Root, and you frankly have little or no idea what this initiative is all about. You joined our church family sometime after last November, and you wonder what the Take Root journey really is and how you might become a part of it. Since we weren't really a part of Take Root, we didn't really make a commitment at the beginning because we were brand new and didn't really know anything about the church. We just got the shirt. And so I think we need to, as a family, make a commitment and figure out what that looks like for us. I trust that as you hear the messages and the stories of faith that you will, that you'll be inspired to root your life more deeply in Christ and make a 12-month commitment to take root as you too can experience the spiritual growth and the joy that comes from boldly trusting Him. Secondly, there are others of us that made a take root commitment a year ago and since then have fallen on hard times. Some unexpected things happen and you find yourself wavering in what to do. Really challenged us to make a commitment in a way that I don't think we ever believed was even possible. We had an unexpected work change. On paper, it was probably the worst time to make a financial commitment like we did, but we didn't want, want to miss out. The fact that this lined up with some of those things was, was very challenging. I want to encourage you to show the same faith now that you did when you initially made the commitment. Keep putting God first. Trust Him with the rest. For you, the next five weeks of Flourish are all about God's sustaining faith and asking God to help you finish strong. Don't give up. Thirdly, there are still others of us who made a take group commitment who may have had an increase in our faith or our finances over this past year. It's not that making your take root commitment has ever been easy, because it has likely required a lot of sacrifice from you. But you're sensing that the Lord may be calling you to stretch even further, to take another bold step for Him. I want to challenge you to listen to God's voice there. We made a, a commitment to take root, and, and we chose to expand that commitment. And I know that there are probably many people in the church who made commitments, and it's difficult. It's difficult to support commitments at times when you face different challenges that were unexpected in your life. To those people, I, I would say, we will pray for you. Uh, Barb and I will pray for you. And the best advice I could give you would be to pray to God because it's Him who that we've made a commitment to. It's, it's not to the church or to the staff. It's, it's between us and God. The last 12 months haven't been easy. These are the largest steps in generosity most of us have ever made. But we're overwhelmed and we're very grateful for what we see God doing in and through us. Over this last year, God has been stretching and growing each of us. As we dive into the amazing book of Acts over the next five weeks, He's gonna inspire us again, I know. And I'm praying that He'll use this wonderful season as a time when we as a church family and each of us as individuals will root our lives more deeply in Christ for the sake of others. And that through us, He will extend flourishing to so many more.
It is great to be together today, and I hope you sense some of the excitement, not only in that video, but all around this place today as we uh, come together to uh, be responsive to God's leading in our lives. And if you're a visitor here for the very first time, or if you are watching via live stream today, just want you to know how much we consider you uh, a blessing in our church's life and pray that you will find yourself encouraged and inspired and challenged by the journey we're going on together. We are going to plunge ourselves into the life of the early church as recorded in the book of Acts. And we're going to mine uh, some of the most important life principles that emerged from the faith story uh, that, that started the whole Christian movement so many years ago. And as we did with our uh, series last fall, uh, our Take Root series, uh, we have created a wonderful little resource guide to be a companion as we go on this journey together. In fact, I want to encourage you to take that out. We put them on the seats or in the pew racks this morning. You can find it actually online if you go to our Take Root website and are part of our live stream congregation. It provides a place for you to take sermon notes, uh, to just record what God is stirring in you as you listen to his word. Uh, it provides a, a wonderful study guide that is going to be used in the uh, various small groups that are going to be a part of our journey over these next weeks. And also you'll find at the very back a new family table talk uh, resource so that uh, uh, moms and dads and grandparents and kids can actually process some of the content themselves around the dinner table. So this is a terrific resource. You'll see a space on the back for you to put your name on it so it doesn't get lost. Bring it with you when you come to worship on the weekends and do make use of it during the course of each week. Uh, we do want to underline that if you're not yet part of a small group for Take Root, it's not too late to do that. Uh, this is one of the best ways of actually personalizing the content that we're going to be studying. And if you stop by our Grow Center today, you can still sign up to be part of one of the groups that are going to be beginning uh, this week. Well, before we jump into the text that we're going to look at today, I just want to set the scene, if I may, and help you understand the context of what we're going to be studying. As you know, uh, on Easter Sunday, Jesus Christ shocked, rocked his disciples by doing what they had never really fully understood, and that is conquering sin and death in the most decisive way possible, proving his power over all things by rising from the grave. And for a period of 40 days, Jesus continued to teach and instruct his disciples and prepare them for their mission ahead. And the day came, uh, recorded in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended uh, out of their presence into the heavenly realms and gave before he left the final instructions he had for his followers. He says, you will be given power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to become my witnesses, my representatives, the ambassadors of my kingdom in all the earth, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth. And then Jesus left. And you can just imagine the disciples at this particular moment looking around at each other, suddenly feeling immensely alone. The one who had been the center of their life, who had been the power really for the whole uh, journey that they had been on was suddenly not physically with them anymore. And he left them with this gigantic job to do, to continue his work in the world. And, and they were just a tiny band of people against a 
massive Roman Empire, a huge uh, civilization. Uh, and they must have felt so inadequate in the moment. But Jesus had said to them that if you wait upon the Holy Spirit, he will come and give you what you need to fulfill this commission I've given to you. And so they did it obediently. They met together. They prayed fervently. And on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish celebration of the first fruits of the harvest, a poetically beautiful day for this to happen, the Holy Spirit did indeed fall upon the disciples. And it took this ragtag band of very ordinary flawed people and it filled them with fresh power and courage and they burst out of the upper room where they'd been waiting and they began to minister in the world in the most remarkable kind of way. And, and we're told that um, on one of the first days there that, that the Lord added 3,000 to their number. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 2 and uh, to see the picture of the early church's life. And we pick up the story now in Acts chapter 4, as the disciples are now living out this amazing uh, resurrection existence. And I want to invite you to listen to the word of God as it comes to us from Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized Peter and John and put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. And so the number who believed grew now to about 5,000 people. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and they had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? And they were referring to an episode that had occurred the prior day when Peter and John had healed an individual. Then Peter, the scriptures say, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is by the name of Jesus we have done this. Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no other power that can accomplish the, the redemption of human lives by which we will be saved. So, and this is my favorite part of the whole text. When all of these religious leaders saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Amidst all of the disputes and divisions and conflicts that are going on in our age, Amidst all that is separating us from one another, 
these issues that play out on the football fields, that rage in the halls of Congress, that show themselves on the streets of our cities, amidst all of this stuff that's fragmenting us and separating us, there is something that unites us. There is one thing that unites, I think, every American, everybody at least I meet and talk with on a daily basis, and that is that we would like to see this world we're living in healed. Every one of us, no matter what our political stripe might be, our cultural background might be, our age may be, we all want to see this world redeemed. We'd like to see, in a sense, the world as it is change into the world as it should be. Every single one of us want a world where you can go to a music concert or you can walk to school or you can uh, get onto an airplane without fearing that some hate-filled lunatic is going to try and take your life from you. We all want a world where Hollywood moguls and corporate titans and uh, priests and pastors and politicians and parents and people in power at any level of human life always use their capacities to build up the lives of those beneath them instead of to, to become predators or, or users of those kinds of people. We all want this. We want a society where when you're really hungry, where when a reversal has happened in your life that, that you couldn't somehow stop or when you're uh, terribly sick or you're alone in life and you're just unsure of how to get out of this mess that you find yourself in. We want to be living in a world where there are people whose hearts are so shaped and formed that they would actually reach out to us and offer a resourceful hand to help us in that particular moment. Everybody wants that kind of a world. We want to live in a nation where, where people obey the law and, and esteem its, its officers. We want a nation where those laws are so just and their enforcement is just so fair that everybody absolutely thrills to their feet at the sight of that nation's flag passing by. I believe most of us yearn to live in a world where hard work and risk and sacrifice are rewarded and where laziness and entitlement or stealing are not rewarded. We want a world where the people whose immense generosity of heart uh, leads them to invest their lives uh, teaching our kids or defending us from harm are publicly esteemed as worthy of honor, even more so than those people whose genetic inheritance enables them to hit a curveball or, or, or woo a camera lens. We'd like to live on a planet where we and the generations that follow us enjoy fresh air and clean water and fertile land. And don't worry about the seas rising and overtaking us. We all want to live a life where others uh, around us help us to get better than we are by speaking the truth and love to us instead of just ravaging us behind our back or writing us off as hopeless. We yearn for a world where everybody can be trusted with freedom Massive freedoms and rights because they are so morally strong and have such a clear vision of what's right and wrong that they can be entrusted with this freedom. And we'll exercise self-restraint where that's needed. No matter our age, our color, our background, 
all of us would like to live a life in which we had what it takes to build a healthier character and family and community. In other words, we'd all like to live in a world where the best in us and others will truly flourish, where we don't simply survive, but where we truly thrive. Would you like to live in that world? Yeah. We all would like to live in that world. So the question becomes, how do we get there? How do we go about stepping into that kind of a future? Because it feels like we're going the opposite direction these days. A lot of us feel that. Like it's just getting, we're deflourishing in, in a sense as a nation and as a world. And I'm convinced that the answer to our greatest need and our deepest hope is not a policy or a product or a program, although that's always going to be peddled in our direction and these things have a, a role to play. I believe that the answer to our deepest need and hope is a person. Rooting our lives more deeply in Christ is the key to helping us flourish. And I want to think about that and demonstrate that, if I can, uh, today and in these conversations we'll have over these next several weeks. It is hard to overstate the positive effect that Jesus had on the lives of the first people who dared to root themselves in him, to invest themselves in really following Jesus. In fact, up till the moment that Peter and John made the decision from being, to, to move from being mere admirers of Jesus to being actual followers of Jesus, let me just underline the significance of that transition because a lot of people are admirers of Jesus. Surveys all over say that people really impressed by Jesus. But a much smaller circle of people have made the decision that they are going to commit themselves to walking with him so consistently they become like him. Up until the moment that Peter and John and, and the other disciples made that particular commitment, their existence had been uh, a version of the kind of treadmill that a lot of us find ourselves running on today. John and Peter were, as you know, fishermen. Uh, they had a very routine-driven kind of life. They got up before dawn to go to work. They labored all day at very repetitive tasks. They went home. They ate. They fell asleep. They got up and did it again. And there were those days that they had a tremendous catch as they went out to fish, and they would tell the story of those days on all of those other days where the fishing was lousy, and there were a lot of those days. There were days when the storms came up and they were terrified and there were other days, many more of those, where it was placid and it was monotonous and it was mind-numbing. It was a life of surviving and not of thriving. There were pleasures, of course, in the midst of their lives, as there are in our lives. There was the joy and pleasure of family and conversation with friends and the taste of new wine and good food. But the overall picture of their times was not pretty. In the first century, in the ancient Middle East, almost most people 
I mean, the vast majority of people lived a subsistence existence. I mean, like they were not sure they would eat tonight. They were just scraping by. The nation was a militarized zone, Israel, at this particular point. There were numerous garrisons of Roman soldiers roaming the land. They, these soldiers often used and abused the Jewish people with absolute impunity. Up to one-third of the population of the Roman world was enslaved. I want you to take that in. Think of almost one-third of everybody you know, maybe you yourself, are being human trafficked. You've got no rights. You, you do the bidding of somebody else. They can use you any way they want, and they were using them. In this particular time in history, the plight, particularly of women and children, was really rough. Uh, Kids were, were terribly abused. Women were routinely raped. Infants were often left out on hillsides, particularly female ones, to die. It, it was not an easy time to be living. And, and education was denied uh, to most people. It was given to a few men, but most people had very little educational opportunity. Disease, life-stealing diseases were were rampant in this time. Uh, some zealots uh, continued to put it, their hope that these things might change if we could have a political revolution. How often do we think, oh, it'll, we'll fix it all in the next election. And there were these zealots that thought that. Uh, but most of the average people, the common people, had given up all hope that things were going to get any different than they were. And only a tiny few dared to have faith that somehow things might really change when the Messiah came. And then he did. He came in a form nobody expected. A very few people came to recognize him. And Peter and John... And Mary Magdalene and Salome and Joanna and some of the others, they were among the very few that actually recognized him when he showed up. And, and they had encountered this young rabbi from Nazareth who kept speaking of the gospel, which means good news, of the kingdom. This was his recurrent refrain. He said he'd come to bring the gospel, the good news, of the inbreaking of the kingdom. And at first they thought that, that the rabbi was talking about a kingdom in the conventional sense of a political or a, or a military regime. But the more they listened to the stories that Jesus told uh, about this kingdom, the more they realized that that this kingdom he was talking about was not so much about rules and regulations like political and military kingdoms so often are. It was about relationships. The kingdom was about how you treated your neighbor or your enemy or the stranger who had come into your land and was now across from you in the, in the train station in our world, they were about how you handled these relationships. Christ's teachings were often about how you managed 
things inside of yourself, how you handled your pride and your anger and your lust, or how you worked with your, your money or your speech and a host of other kinds of, of dimensions of life that in a sense proceed and produce a certain kind of world. And gradually, the disciples figured out that what Jesus was trying to say is that before there can ever be greater flourishing out there, there has to be a greater kind of life that starts in here. Before there's going to be massive change out there for everybody, there has to at least be some of us for whom massive change has started to happen in here. And so Peter and John and the others began the slow and painful process of pulling their roots out of all of the other kingdoms in which they had their primary citizenship, their primary membership. Uh, they had to pull themselves out of the, the kingdom of thingdom, you know, where you define your success and your security and your fulfillment by the stuff that you acquire. They had to, to, to pull their roots out of the, the kingdom of looking good or the kingdom of getting control or the kingdom of being popular and, and then redeploy the roots of their lives, sink them deep in the promises Jesus was making. The promise that God loved them indefatigably. The promise that God would be with them, whether they were rich or poor, in the time of storm or sickness or serenity. That, that he had a power in himself, this promise was. That this resurrected Jesus had a power to make all things new and that he was going to make things new through them, not because of how good they were, but because of how good he was. And filled with a sense of this amazing grace that God was extending to them, these disciples slowly became the most humble and courageous and impressive people that have ever walked the earth. One of the promises that Jesus had made was that if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. You'll flourish. And, and so the disciples started to adopt these practices, these daily and weekly practices that they um, intended to use to <clears throat> keep them connected to Christ, uh, truly connected to Christ. And, and there were these rhythms of, of, of work and of rest, of praise and prayer, of fellowship and study, of gratitude and generosity. Go back and read Acts 2, 42 and following. You'll get a picture of these particular practices at work. They had seen Jesus do all of these things, and so they just imitated them, and they started doing them like he had done them, and an amazing thing happened. The Holy Spirit started to come up and move through them in greater and greater measure, and the character of Jesus Christ began to grow in them. And Peter and John and the others, who frankly had been pretty flawed people, very fickle people, if you know the gospel stories, started to become these much more consistent people, people of greater and greater love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And as they rooted themselves daily more deeply in Christ, they not only flourished personally, they, they became a phenomenal force for flourishing in their society. Now we get a very tiny glimpse of this in the text that we read earlier from Acts chapter 4. But it's a, important to note it because it's a preview of, of the so much more that happens after this as time goes on. Peter and John, we read, perform an act of kindness. They heal a lame man in the name of Jesus. And they go on to proclaim that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most defining moment in history because it demonstrates there is a power available to human beings to overcome sin and death itself. And, and, and they go on to say there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. In other words, they're saying Jesus is the key to human flourishing here and now and in the ever after. And we're told that many who heard that message came to believe it. And when you read the word believe in the New Testament, the Greek term believe does not mean to hold an intellectual idea. It means to step your life into it. It's like the story of the guy who was standing at the edge of Niagara Falls and saw the tightrope stretched out over the water and an amazing high wire artist going back and forth with a pole and juggling and doing amazing things. And the guy got to his side and, and, and the guy said, the spectator said, you're the most incredible artist I've ever seen. You're amazing. The guy says, you think I'm good? And he says, oh, I think you're the best I've ever seen. He says, you think I could take that wheelbarrow over there? You think I could take that across the wire? And the spectator said, absolutely. I've got complete faith in you. And the high wire artist said, great. Get into the wheelbarrow. <laughs> We're going. When you hear the word believe in the New Testament, Remember, it's wheelbarrow faith. It's getting your life into it. It's rooting your life in it and committing to it and living on the promises that Jesus makes. Many who heard the message of the kingdom believed, and the number who believed grew to about 5,000, the scriptures say. Now, I read that again this past week, and it suddenly hit me. 5,000. What does that remind me of? Oh, our church is 5,000 people. The entire Christian movement at this moment is no larger than Christ's church. And yet, what grows out of that body of people, that first church, is, goes on to revolutionize the Roman Empire and birth an entirely new kind of civilization. Over the years to come, the disciples of Jesus will liberate countless slaves. They, they will lift up women and children as had never been done in human civilization before. They will minister mercy 
to countless sick and dying people during the plagues that overran the ancient world. The church will expand educational opportunity for all. They will inspire scientific inquiry. They will catalyze the movement of the arts. The Christian message will re-envision the entire notion of power, how it's to be used, what it's for, who should hold it in a way that would create democracy. They will rethink the rights and responsibilities of private property and of human initiative. They will lay an ethical base that will make free markets and capitalism and the flourishing in a material sense of people possible as never before had ever existed on, human, on this human planet. And, and in, a, in a nutshell, the gospel of the kingdom, as it gets sown out across the world, will promote the temporal and the eternal flourishing of billions and billions of people. It will reach into the very room where you and I are sitting right now. We're here because they rooted themselves in Christ for the sake of others. I don't think Peter and John could see it at the moment. I doubt that they had any real idea what would fully come from their decision to root their lives in Christ. On this particular day, they get thrown in jail for it. They're, they're spending the night in the cold, dank cell for their decision to live this faith out. But even their critics are compelled to admit there's something going on here with these people. Uh, there's a ripple starting to move through this Christian community. And something is stirring in the society at this moment. And I love that they at least seem to recognize the core of what's going on. And I quote again, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So here's what I want to leave with you today. Here's what I want to invite you to think about as the takeaway from our conversation that I hope that will work in you as in me over the course of time till we are together again. I want to just ask two questions. First, what steps can you and I take to be with Jesus this week? What steps can we take to be with Jesus? We're going to face a lot of pressures, a lot of clamor, voices, influences, forces that are going to want to pull us in so many different directions. What are the commitments we can make to be in Christ? so that we bear fruit. Let me offer a couple of ideas. He's going to be in those small groups that are happening this week. He's promised, wherever even two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. Jesus is going to be out there with the poor and the hurting people that you're going to meet along your trail because the gospels show us he aligns himself with them. Jesus is going to be waiting for you in the scriptures. The word of made flesh will be there in the word of God on paper. He's going to be with you 
in the silence, if you allow yourself some, he's going to be ready to speak to you there. He will draw very near to you every time you stoop to serve. Every time you get off the throne and you bend your knee to serve, Jesus will be coming close to you. You'll be with Jesus. What are the steps you're going to take? What are those measures to be with him? Secondly and finally, what will be the evidence that others will see that you have been with him? This is an easy question to answer. I, I can tell you what the evidence will be. The evidence will be that they will note in your character, in your conduct, something good, green and growing, that wasn't quite so much there last week. They, they will find in you something, or should I say someone, with a greater passion to see the world as it is changing into the world as it should be. They will meet power for flourishing in your life. In short, what they will see is what I call the Jesus effect. Please pray with me. And now, Lord God, recognizing you as the source of all life, the power that all of us in this world needs, move us by your Holy Spirit to root our lives more deeply in you for the sake of others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.